If you got your Bible, I told you we're in Isaiah chapter 9 today. Isaiah chapter 9. Um, and here in Isaiah 9, it's actually a continuation of a prophecy that God gave through the prophet Isaiah, starting in chapter 8. In the NIV Bible, there's a, a section header that starts at verse 19 of chapter 8, and it says this. It says, the darkness turns to light. Aren't you glad we have a God who turns darkness into light? Aren't you, aren't you grateful that there's a Savior who steps into dark places, into dark moments, into dark seasons, into dark lives, and he flips on a light? Uh, that is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. In fact, this is what we call messianic prophecy. This is prophecy about a Messiah, about a Savior who is to come. This was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. Uh, in this season, Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Judah. Judah, at this point in time, is ruled by a king named Ahaz. Ahaz rules for four years, uh, and his rule is marked by nothing but evil, nothing but darkness. The Bible does not have one good thing to say about King Ahaz. And as the people are in darkness, we know that, that man, when the rulers are evil, the people suffer. When the rulers reject God, when the rulers turn from God, there are ramifications of it. This is the same thing, uh, the, the, the principle of authority. Man, if you've got an evil boss, you suffer for it, right? If you've got an evil mayor, an evil president, we're going to suffer for it. If you have an evil father, the kids are going to suffer. The wife is going to suffer. When God puts somebody in a leadership role, if the person in that leadership role is rebellious, if the person in that leadership role rejects what God has asked them to do, it has ramifications for others. And so it's a season of darkness in Judah. It's a season of suffering. Ahaz's rule is causing issues for everybody. And in the midst of this darkness, a voice pops up. God sends a messenger, a prophet, to say, it may be dark today, but it is not going to be dark forever. It may be dark right now, but there is a light who is coming. He is going to come, and things are going to change. Amen? Amen. See, Isaiah prophesied about a Messiah who is to come. They were in the expectation of the Messiah. We now are in what we call the in-between. We didn't just look forward to the Messiah. Now we look back to the Messiah, to what he has done, to how he has come. But we still look forward to his return because these prophecies are partially fulfilled. Jesus has come and, and set some things right. He has made it possible for us to be restored to God, for us to experience peace on earth. He's done a lot for us, but he hasn't done everything yet. So we still look forward to his return when he comes and he fully fulfills this. He fully lives it out. He fully makes it happen in our lives. So we have access to light, but we don't walk in the full light. We still experience darkness, don't we? We still experience pain. We still experience suffering. There's still issues and trauma and loss. And especially at this time of year, we often become extra aware of that. We become aware of, of financial suffering, right? We feel this pressure to provide this amazing Christmas for our families. And can I just please put this out there? We love being generous. We love stepping into to situations where people are in need. And if you are in need, let us know. We would love to help. But please, please, please don't define Christmas by the gifts you can give your kids. 
That's the lie of the culture. We see it in every Christmas movie, right? Like, we got to save Christmas because Santa's not going to make it, and if nobody gets presents, there's no Christmas. Can I just be honest? You don't need a present to have Christmas because we have Jesus. I love being able to give gifts to my kids. I look forward to, to the look on their face. My, my dad and my sister are in town, and they gave some gifts to my kids this week because they won't be here for Christmas, and so we already got a little taste of it. And I'm so grateful. Man, the kids are, were pumped up. Man, I couldn't get them to go to sleep last night because I wanted to pray with their new presents, right? Like, it's a beautiful thing, but that's not Christmas. We give because God gave. We give as a, as, as a representation, as a reminder of what he has done. And so we don't want to reduce Christmas to that. We put this pressure on, right, financially. People go into debt. People make decisions to make this Christmas happen that are going to affect all of next year. Don't do that. Right? Let's walk in wisdom. Let's walk in biblical principles. It's okay to have less if we need to for a season. But the season reminds us of what's missing more than just a gift. Oftentimes, the season reminds us of who is missing. Right? Maybe that's an absentee parent. Maybe that's a child who has rebelled and gone away. Maybe it's just a physical separation. We live here and they live there and we can't close the gap and I'll be home for Christmas if only in my heart, right? We, we, we're reminded of this thing, this person who's missing. Maybe we're reminded of someone who's missing because they're not here with us anymore. I've known so many people who the holiday season is so difficult for because they actually experienced a loss of that loved one during this season. And so they come to this season and it reminds them of that one that they loved, that one that they celebrated with, who they can't celebrate with anymore. This passage of scripture, Isaiah chapter 9, is part of what we call the Emmanuel chapters, or actually many call it the, the book of Emmanuel. Starting in Isaiah chapter 7 through Isaiah chapter 12, there's this section that is all about Emmanuel. It's all about the God who is with us. Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about Emmanuel. Leading up to Christmas Eve, we're going to look at these four different names for Jesus that we find in Isaiah chapter 9, you probably have already figured out we're starting today with wonderful counselor. We're going to add one of them as we go. Today, I want to give you some context. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, as we read about how the darkness turns to light. It says this. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah is prophesying, and the people who initially hear this, they know that this prophecy is for them. See, it was for them. It wasn't just for them. But they say, hey, the people walking in darkness, that's us. This is a dark season. This is a dark time. Things are not going well in our country. We are experiencing lack. We are walking in rebellion. We're separated from God. And so they identify quickly as the people walking in darkness. What they didn't know is that all of us would be people walking in darkness. That all of us, because of sin, would be separated from God and in desperate need of a Savior. And so this story was the story of the people of Judah, but it's also my story. It's also your story. We were all walking in darkness, but it says they have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. Perhaps you've experienced some deep darkness. Right? There's, some, there's some general darkness, there's some general frustration, 
But sometimes there's deep darkness. Deep darkness is when you're in a dark place for an extended period of time. Right? You're not just looking forward to the dawn, but it's like, man, it seems like it's been dark for so long. It seems like it's been hopeless for so long. I don't even remember what the light looks like. I don't even remember what joy feels like. I don't even remember what hope can be like. That is deep darkness. And it says, for those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Aren't you grateful? For a light in the midst of deep darkness. It says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Amen. Somebody needs to claim that. God is increasing our joy today. It says, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. That's a double meaning right there. I love when God says one thing, but it means two things. Right? They, they understood rejoicing at the harvest. Man, there was food. There was abundance. There was more than enough. They rejoiced at the harvest. But God's heart rejoices at the harvest. The harvest of souls as people come in. And so I want our hearts to line up with God's heart. Let's be people who rejoice at the harvest. I believe there's a harvest coming on Christmas Eve. Not just here, but across churches around our county, our area, our nation. It's a Sunday. Man, this is going to be a, a, a bigger church attendance for Christmas Eve than ever, I believe. I believe we have a nation who needs some joy, who needs some hope, who needs some light. And we have a God who offers that, who provides that. Since they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. He's the one who sets us free. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor is now shattered. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So in the midst of this messianic prophecy, as it gets ready to give us who Jesus is, it paints the picture of, of oppression. Of enemies. That man, Judah is experiencing this oppression right now. They're experiencing enemies. They're in a war with Assyria. They're, they're trying to team up with Israel and help Israel, their northern neighbors, defend against Assyria. And even though God promises in chapter 8 that Assyria will not defeat them or destroy them, there's great suffering in the war. Even a war where we see victory takes its toll. And so there's this great suffering going on, this darkness in the land of Judah, and God's telling them, hey, those who oppress you, those who attack you, those who oppose you, your enemies are going to be defeated. Now, we're not talking just about physical enemies of Judah, although it means that, but God is ultimately prophesying about our spiritual enemy, Satan. Now, he is going to be destroyed. You see, the first prophecy in all of Scripture happens all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when God speaks to Eve. And in the midst of Eve's judgment for her sin, he tells Eve, I'm going to bring someone through you who is going to destroy the serpent. The serpent's going to bite his heel, but he is going to crush the head of the serpent. Messianic prophecy starts all the way at the beginning. Jesus is coming to destroy the enemy, and we see it here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We get to our key passage, our key verse. It says, for to us. Everybody say, for to us. Not just for Judah. Not just for them. Not just for those who live a better life. Not just for those who seem to have it figured out. Not just for those who seem to walk in righteousness for all of us. A child is born. For to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. We see Israel right now 
engaged in war with Hamas, longing for a day where the government will rest on the shoulders of Jesus. See, this prophecy is already, but not yet. It's not fully fulfilled in Christ. It will be one day. And so Israel longs for its Messiah. It doesn't even know most of them that Jesus is that Messiah, but he's going to reveal that to Israel one day. There's going to be this great revival, this great response amongst the Jews, amongst the people of Israel. And I believe that that day is drawing closer and closer. The day will come when the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Everybody say Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, say mighty God. God. Everlasting Father. Father. Prince of Peace. peace. Jesus will be called Wonderful Counselor. Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. That these things will define him. This is who he is. We're going to look in each one of these through this series. It says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no And how do I know that this prophecy is not fully fulfilled yet? Because we don't have total peace. We have some chaos. We have some anxiety. We have some stress. We have some frustration. We have some pain, perhaps, especially at this time of year. At the time where we draw nearest to remember that God sent Emmanuel, that God sent his son, oftentimes life, oftentimes the enemy conspires to make things less peaceful, to create some anxiety, some frustration, some pain in our heart. Why? Because he doesn't want us to hear the message of the Prince of Peace. It says of the government, uh, greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for a wonderful counselor. God, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to us, that he came for us. God, I thank you that this thing that you prophesied 2,700 years ago, this thing that you began 2,000 years ago with the birth of Jesus, God, that you are still accomplishing it. You are not done yet. You are still up to something. And so, God, I pray today that you would be up to something in our midst, that the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the everlasting father, the mighty God would speak loud and clear to every heart. And God, that you would meet us right where we're at. We thank you for what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. We are kicking off today with part one that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. He's our wonderful counselor. Jesus, you see, was prophesied all through the Old Testament, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, and woven in between, we get these little hints, these little ideas, these little shadows, these little prophecies of the one who was to come. And the amazing thing about Jesus is unlike so many things we experience in life is Jesus lives up to the hype. Jesus lives up to everything that was spoken about him. Can you imagine the pressure that has been prophesied that you'd be a wonderful counselor, that you'd be an everlasting father, that you'd be a mighty God, that you'd be a prince of peace? I wouldn't want that kind of pressure. I wouldn't want that kind of hype. I wouldn't want that assigned to me. That's a lot to fulfill. In fact, there's only one who could ever do it. But Jesus lives up to the hype Thursday night 
Thanksgiving night, my family gathered around the television to watch our Seattle Seahawks, our beloved Seattle Seahawks, play the San Francisco 49ers. And we've been so excited. We've been looking forward to this until we found out, since we found out this game was going to happen on Thanksgiving because dad is here. And dad is the, the Seahawks patriarch in the family. He's the one who's, who's passed this on to his children. We are Seahawks fans because dad was a Seahawks fan, right? Uh, and I haven't got a chance to watch a game with my dad since Judah was four days old over nine years ago. And so this is the second game Judah's ever gotten to watch with his grandpa. And since that game when he was four days old, G Judah has become this huge Seahawks fan, right? He is into it, and he cares, and he knows what's going on, and, and it's fun to watch. And so we were so excited and so hyped up to watch with Aunt Tracy and watch with Grandpa, and we get to the game, and it did not live up to the hype, okay? We got crushed. Like, it wasn't close. We didn't show up in the first half. We didn't show up in the second half. We didn't show up at Thanksgiving dinner. Like, we just didn't show up at all. <laughs> and so often in life, we get so hyped up for something, and it's so disappointing when it finally gets there. We can probably all remember that Christmas morning we were so excited for and so hyped for, and we had asked for that one gift, and whether you asked mom and dad, or you asked Santa, or you had covered your bases, and you asked Santa, and you asked mom and dad, but, but you got to Christmas morning, and it wasn't there, right? And they were so excited to give you something else, and something else just didn't cut it. So often, some of y'all are going through something right now, like it's PTSD, uh, we got a wonderful counselor who will walk you through that. Hallelujah. Uh, so often life doesn't live up to the hype. And yet Jesus Christ comes with the highest expectations in history. With the greatest declarations that could ever be attached to anyone. And he fulfills it all. Jesus lives up. To the hive, what an amazing thing. I want to go to the Hebrew very quickly so you understand what wonderful counselor means. In the Hebrew language, the word for wonderful is pele. Pele means to wonder or marvel. It means extraordinary or hard to understand. So this isn't just wonderful like better than good. It's not like just another adjective for good. It's a specific kind of wonderful. It exceeds our understanding. He exceeds our comprehension. In Hebrew, pele is the closest word and the closest concept that they have to the word that we have, supernatural. So you could insert here, rather than wonderful counselor, we could call him supernatural counselor. Not just a better counselor than the counselor that we have here on earth. Not just better advice than the advice that we get from those around us. But his is supernatural. It's not just better. It's different. It's other altogether. It's marvelous counsel. We, we marvel at it. We can't comprehend it. How could he be so wise? How could he be so smart? How could he understand all of it? His counsel is wonderful. The implication here is, is that Jesus is more than just someone we can go to for good advice. What we're painting is a picture of a king. Isaiah is, is mixing metaphors and swapping metaphors in. He's, he's essentially like making a quilt 
this picture with all these different patches of what the Messiah will look like. And starting in the center of his quilt, he gives us these four different patches. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And the rest of this picture is going to radiate out from there. It's these four different concepts that seem almost unrelated. But he starts with wonderful counselor. What he's doing is he's building a case for a king. Judah is suffering under terrible kingship. And it's no coincidence that of all the points in history where God could prophesy that Jesus would be these things, that he does it during the reign of King Ahaz. This evil king, this king who does nothing right, God is comparing and contrasting. He's saying, you have a king who has terrible plans. You have a king who can't think anything ahead. You have a king who can't put anything together. He surrounded himself with awful counselors. I have a king who is coming who doesn't need counselors. In fact, he will give counsel. And it will be wonderful. You will marvel at it. You will be amazed at it. The counsel that I bring through my son. So his counsel is wonderful. Pele, the word for counselor is ya'atzt. And I probably mispronounced that because I am not Hebrew or Jewish. Uh, but but it, it, it's similar to ya'atzt. That's close. Uh, and that means to advise, to consult, to give counsel, to give purpose, to devise. It's a plan. So we see this picture of this marvelous planner. This supernatural counselor, in fact, you could write this down, his plans are supernatural. They're supernatural. One of the responsibilities of a king is to make plans for the people, to make plans for the nation. It's one of the responsibilities of authority, right, is the authority figure has to be the visionary. The authority figure has to be the one who comes up with an idea, who comes up with a plan, or ultimately has to be the one to say, this is the plan we'll go with. He considers counsel and asks others and gets feedback and input, but ultimately the buck has to stop somewhere, and the buck stops with the king. God says, I'm sending a king whose counsel is supernatural. His plans are supernatural. Why does that matter so much to us? Well, first of all, I want you to know that God had a big picture plan that he was fulfilling through Jesus, and that plan was wonderful. I mean, fast forward 700 years from this point, Jesus comes, and he's born, and he lives 33 years, and everything seems great. He lives a sinless life, and he's walking and healing and relating and and doing miracles, right? He's multiplying bread and fishes, and he's doing all this great stuff, and then in the midst of all this, he's crucified. He doesn't just die. He dies this public death, this spectacle death, this death where everyone sees him hang naked and in shame. And it seems like what in the world? This was not the way it was supposed to go. But God had a plan. See, that death that seems so tragic, that seems so devastating, was the very thing that I needed to be restored to relationship with God. It was the only way I could ever be set free from my sin. Why? Because his plans are supernatural. Because his counsel is supernatural. His wisdom blows our mind. We marvel at it. We wonder at it. It doesn't make sense to the natural mind. But when we see it in the spirit, it's glorious. It's incredible. Here's what I need you to know. It's not just his big picture plan. That is wonderful. 
He also has small picture plans. See, I just have a God who's big enough that he can have a plan for all of us and have a good plan for me in the midst of it. So his plans for you are supernatural. He knew you before he formed you in your mother's womb. He knew your struggles, your weaknesses, your pain, your shame. And he knew your call, your giftings, your purpose, the way that he wanted to bring glory to his son Jesus. He knew all of it before you were ever formed. Why? Because his plans are supernatural. He knew the good works that he had prepared for you to do in advance, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He knew it all. Why? Because his name says it all. Because he is a wonderful counselor. And I know oftentimes we hit a point in our story, a point in our journey where it seems dark, where it seems hopeless, where it seems like, how did I ever end up at this place? And the reality is oftentimes we end up there because of our own mistakes, because of our own shortcomings, our own sin. Sometimes we end up there because of somebody else's shortcomings, because somebody else didn't fulfill the very best that they could live up to. Oftentimes we may end up there because of a government, because of an authority figure who has let us down. But even in the midst of that, God's got a plan for you. He has a light for you. He has hope for you. It is not over. If it's a dark season today, then you can know with faith and confidence that means the story is not done. God's plan for you is not finished because he's always up to something. Even when I don't see him, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. Even when it's dark. And I would say this, especially when it's dark. See, I have a God who specializes in a comeback story. He specializes in 180-degree turns. He specializes in showing up at what seems like the last possible minute. God has a flair for the dramatic, right? He, he knows how to wait until the last moment, but he always shows up on time. He is never late. His counsel is supernatural. Here's another reason why that matters to us. Because the promise of God's word is that we have the mind of Christ. This is a really hard one for me to wrap my mind around sometimes because I know the, the shortcomings of my mind. I know the temptations of my mind. I know the weaknesses of my mind. I know the distractions of my mind, the chaos of my mind. I know how I start out with great intentions to go before God, and somehow my mind ends up somewhere all the way opposed to that, thinking about lunch, thinking about something very non-supernatural, and so it may not always seem like I have the mind of Christ, but I don't walk by sight. I walk by faith and faith in the word of God and the promise of scripture is that I have the mind of Christ. See, so 2 Corinthians 9 or chapter 2 verse 16 puts it this way. It says, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? He quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 13. This same prophet, the apostle Paul is quoting from. And then after the quote, he says this. He says, but, aren't you grateful for that big beautiful but? But we have the mind of Christ. Do you know you have the mind of Christ? This isn't for everybody, by the way. This is for everybody who's received Jesus. It's everybody the Holy Spirit lives in. If you've received Jesus, you've believed on him as Lord and Savior, you have the mind of Christ. So it is for everybody and that all of us have the opportunity to receive this. But it doesn't mean everybody has the mind of Christ. Before you came to Jesus, you didn't have the mind of Christ. But today, if you're a believer, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ that thought up creation. 
The mind that thought up the DNA molecule, that thought up the construction of the atom, that thought up the brilliance of the galaxies, the spectacle of the universe, that mind is in you. When I was at Church on the Move where I interned, where I met my amazing wife, Melody, I was there for four years. They used to always tell us this. They would tell us we had the mind of Christ, and they would say it when we'd say something like this. We'd be like, man, I'm, I'm not very creative. Church on the Move excels at creativity, and, and oftentimes we get a project, we're like, hey, you need to figure this out. I want you to brainstorm up this event, this service, and, and inevitably one of us silly interns will be like, you know what? That's not really my gift. I'm not really creative. Maybe somebody else can do this, and they would always call us on it. They would say, no, you have the mind of Christ. Doesn't mean somebody else may not have more creativity or more of a gift. That's, that's the reality. Yes, God gives us each differently, but the mind of Christ is in you. The same mind, the wonderful counselor, the one with spectacular plans, supernatural plans, his mind is in you. Now, we have to access it. We got to turn ours off so we can turn his on. We got to shut up the voices in our heads so we can hear his, right? Like we don't just naturally walk in this. This is a supernatural experience. But you, believer, have the mind of Christ. James puts it this way. It says, if any of us lack wisdom, we can come to God and ask, and he gives it generously Without finding fault. Time and again, we write ourselves off. We're like, well, God can't use me because I did this. God can't speak to me because I've been so distant from him for so long. But the word of God says, if you will ask him, if you will allow him, he will give you wisdom without finding fault. He's not up there keeping score. He's not up there with tally marks for good and evil. He, you're not, he's not checking to see if you're on the nice list or the naughty list. What does he want to see? Does his spirit live in you? Has the blood of Jesus covered you? If those things are true for you, then this promise is true for you, that he will give you more than enough wisdom, generous wisdom, abundant wisdom, if you'll just ask. Maybe you're at a dark place today. Maybe you're at a hopeless place today. I need you to know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who came as a baby, is a wonderful counselor. You are not experiencing anything that caught him off guard. He is not surprised by your pain. He is not surprised by your rejection. He is not surprised by your abandonment. He is not surprised by the neglect of others. He is not surprised by your failures, by your habit, by your addiction, by anything you have done. None of it's caught him off guard. You know why? Because he's a wonderful counselor. Because he's got a mind who sees the future. He's omniscient. He knows it all. And he's now given you access to the mind of Christ. We got to put that mind on as we go into the Christmas season, as we get ready for some difficult and dark days. Very quickly as we close, I need you to know this there is comfort. In his counsel. There is comfort in his counsel. In John chapter 14 verse 26. And in other places. Jesus will refer to his Holy Spirit. As the paraclete. It's the Greek term. Paraclete is most commonly translated for us. As the comforter. He's the one who comforts. But it can also be translated as. Counselor. You see his counsel. 
provides comfort. Lord, we go to him in our pain, in our hurt, in our failure, in our shame. When we go to him in our brokenness, he is going to provide counsel, and that counsel will bring comfort. He promises he's close to the brokenhearted. He promises that he comforts all who mourn. I don't know who needs some comfort today. I don't know who needs some counsel today. But if you will turn to the wonderful counselor, if you will allow the mind of Christ to activate inside of you, he will bring comfort through that. Now, sometimes it's instantaneous and sometimes it's a process. Sometimes we go through a wilderness season. Sometimes we don't experience it immediately and that's where faith comes in. Do you trust him? Why do we trust him? Because he's been faithful before. Because he came through before. Because he showed up for us before. Because he delivered us before. Because he set us free. And so I can trust him that he's going to show up again. Because he's the same God who did it already. There is comfort in his counsel. His plans for you are supernatural. I wonder today who might be with us in our midst, watching online, listening to the podcast, and you're in a dark place. You're in a dark season. Maybe it's a momentarily dark season. Maybe Thanksgiving didn't go the way you wanted. Maybe the turkey didn't turn out too good, (laughs) right? And maybe it's a silly dark season because, man, you had these plans and these expectations, and Thanksgiving didn't live up to the hype. Maybe you're a Seahawks fan and you're in mourning today. You are not alone. Maybe it's much more serious than a turkey or a football game. To the people living in darkness, God has sent a great light. And that light is named Jesus. And he is a wonderful counselor. He is an everlasting father. He is a mighty God. He is the prince of peace. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he's here today, but not only is he here today, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you've trusted on his lordship, he is here today, which means that the mind of Christ is available to you, which means that the comfort and the counsel of the Holy Spirit is available to you. And if you have not yet given your life to Jesus, God the Father knew. Hundreds, thousands of years ago, that you would live, that you would fall, that you would sin and violate his covenant and violate his law. And he knew that you would be in need of a Messiah, of a Savior. And so his supernatural plan, his wonderful counsel from the beginning was that his son would come and die in your place and pay the price for your sin and for mine so that you could be restored, so that you could receive the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the comforter, so that the mind of Christ would be available to you, that his supernatural plans, his wonderful plans, his marvelous counsel could shine in your life, that you would not be hopeless, that it would not have to be dark for you, but the light would shine on you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me?